0: Reach MD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on Reach MD Radio, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz.
1: Yes, you are, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. As always, today is the greatest show ever. We hope you can handle it because it's a lot to swallow. Literally, our guest will be author Mary Capella, whose book is titled "Swallow Foreign Bodies: Their Ingestion, Inspiration, and the Curious Doctor Who Extracted Them." If you want to know where the ENT field claims its origins and hear about some of the craziest things ever swallowed, inhaled, and extracted, stay tuned.
0: And we'll also talk to medical technologist and correspondent Dr. Joseph Kim, who's got robotics on his mind these days. Are literally on his mind. Because word on the street is that military is within six months of testing a robotic arm controlled by patients' thoughts. More on that and other technological advances
1: to come. I think I'd like to get you off the show, Matt. And February is National Heart Month. In recognition, we'll pay tribute to the fine art of auscultation and play some quick rounds of a game we're calling What's That Thump? You can play, too. Stick around. We'll explain. Thump, 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 thump. What's
0: that thump? Stump that thump. If you can swallow the pressure, (laughs) metaphorically, this time. All of that and more today on, on Second, Second Opinion, Opinion Live. Live. Yes. Woo. But first, some of the latest news from the world of medicine.
1: Yes. Let's start with some truly scary news, Matt. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention just released their 2011 fact sheet on diabetes. The news is alarming, to say the least. Here are the stats: 26 million Americans of all ages now have diabetes. And a third of the adult population has prediabetes. You heard me right there, one-third of adults. One-third of adults. And among ethnic groups, American Indians and Alaska Natives topped the chart with a diabetes prevalence of 16%. But the rest of America isn't far behind, with 12.6% of blacks, nearly 12% of Hispanics, 8.4% of Asian Americans, and just over 7% of whites carrying this disease. And about 1.9 million American adults were diagnosed with diabetes in 2010, and another 7 million are projected to have diabetes without knowing it. It's the seventh leading cause of death now, and medical costs reached up to $116 billion annually. Whoa. And they all listen to our show. Wow.
0: You know, you hear numbers like that, and just, it just humbles you as a practitioner, as somebody who provides care. I mean, we're clearly looking at one of the nation's worst silent killers in plain sight, but... Do the numbers tell the whole story here? That is one of the big questions. And yeah, we know that rising obesity is an obvious factor here. In fact, another report by the National Research Council argues that obesity accounts for as much as one-third of our country's shortfall in life expectancy growth over the past 25 years. You know, we're actually lagging behind 21 other countries now for life expectancy gains. I mean, not that I knew it was really a competition, but... Stop eating out there. Well, that's great. But, but... Let's keep in mind that diabetes patients themselves live a lot longer now on average than they did 25 years ago. So the prevalence is naturally going to shift for every year that their life expectancy rises, right?
1: Yeah, and don't forget the American Diabetes Association lowered the criteria for diagnosis. So you could argue, Matt, mm-hmm. that while more people are diagnosed with diabetes now, the actual disease burden may be similar. Probably not though.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> it's true, but it doesn't make me feel a lot better about our situation. It is something to keep in mind though and you know, last year, the CDC predicted as many as one in three American adults could have full-blown diabetes by the year 2050. Well, if the current stat of one in three adults has prediabetes tells us anything... It's probably that we're way ahead of schedule, don't you think?
1: Yeah, we'll just change the numbers if you want a different result. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the more reason than to recognize a man who was years ahead of his time on the battle against obesity, making his last headline, Jack Lillane, America's first personal trainer and father of the modern fitness movement, died January 23rd at the age of 96. In a time when regular exercise was often considered a health hazard, even by doctors. Now, Mr. Lane defied conventions and popularized the concept of physical fitness nationwide. Now, some of you may not recognize his name at all. So here's a rundown of contributions he's made against our modern Battle of the bulging. Wild Matt's readings. I'm going to be doing push-ups.
0: Diamond push-ups. <laughs> Diamond push-ups for my triceps. For his triceps. First off, plant yourself in any U.S. city. And you can probably guarantee that there will be a fitness center within one mile of you, wherever you are. Now, Jack Lalane, he opened the very first one in Oakland, California, in 1936. <laughs> you can only imagine what kind of equipment they had. It had weights, it had a juice bar, a health food store, all of those things, completely foreign concepts back then. He even invented a lot of exercise equipment, from cable and pulley weight machines to the leg extension machines that everybody uses now, for better or worse. Most people hate them now. He even had a nationwide exercise show on TV from 1951 to 1984. Michael, I think you were an adult even then.
1: I was watching him, yeah. Sporting
0: jumpsuits, doing exercise routines for people to follow along at home. Again, nobody had even thought of that before, and he carried it for 30 years.
1: And let's not forget about the showmanship. The guy pulled quite a few stunts. At age 40, he swam the length of the Golden Gate Bridge underwater with 140 pounds of equipment on his back. (laughs) And even at 70, I'm still doing push-ups, by the way, he shackled himself to a cruise ship with 70 people on board and towed it a mile and a half. That's insane.
0: You know, Some of his quotes were also classic. Here's a Jack Lane special. Ten seconds on the lips and a lifetime on the hips. That's where that came from. That's where it came from. I'd say at least two-thirds of the country knows exactly what that's all about now, unfortunately. Well, at
1: least he got the ball rolling, literally, on lifestyle <laughs> inventions. So in response to all those old-school docs who thought exercise was just a one-way ticket to heart attacks and hernias, we at Second Opinion Live salute you, Mr. LaLanne. Rest in peace. Rest in Thank peace. you so much for what you did for us. All right. That's as good a time as any for us to shift gears,
0: literally, (laughs) and focus on medical robotics. Literally. This month, the FDA announced the launch of a new medical device innovation initiative called the Innovation Pathway. This is a fast-track review program for new breakthrough medical devices created in response to industry criticisms of an evaluation system that was way too strict, way too slow in getting new devices to market. So the FDA's first submission is a brain-controlled robotic arm that's expected to pass FDA approval for testing within the next six months. Giving us some perspective on that and other robotic innovations, we have Dr. Joseph Kim, health technologist and editor of the blog MedicineAndTechnology.com. Dr. Kim, welcome to ReachMD. Hello, thanks for having me.
1: Hey there. um, Can you tell us anything else about the pathway to innovation, or did we cover it? Did we pretty well describe it?
2: Well, you pretty much did describe it, and I think the FDA is really taking a first step to look at ways that public health can be improved with the use of medical technology. There's so much going on in the private sector as well as in academic centers and and by researchers, and I think they, they realize that now is an opportune time to really accelerate the process to see how... Some of these technologies can be used to control diseases like you were talking about earlier, you know, diabetes, it's becoming an epidemic, or obesity, or some of these other problems. So I think that, um, I think that we're going to see some really innovative things appearing in the next uh, year or two.
0: Do you think that those criticisms levied by the industry were on target, or obviously they have their own agenda, they're looking at the profit-loss column, but do you think the FDA's approval process was way too slow, way too strict?
2: Well, I I think the FDA is put into a very difficult position right now, and and part of it is the scrutiny from some of the problems that have occurred both in the pharmaceutical industry as well as in the device industry, be it with um, these cardiac devices and just other things along those lines. So there's been, a, in my personal perspective, a reactionary shift from the FDA to be more cautious. And, of course, this has hindered the approval of devices, but I think the FDA is also realizing that maybe... There are opportunities for other types of devices. Um, you know, Just last week or the week before, we heard about the FDA approving uh, this, really, it's a medical application for the iPhone, the iPad, you know, these Apple devices for radiologists to be able to view them to actually make diagnostic uh, medical decisions. And this is the first of its kind, and I think, once again, it's a device that isn't going to get implanted into a patient. It's a device that can really be beneficial for healthcare professionals. And ultimately, a device and a technology that could really advance healthcare. So, I think we will start seeing devices that are probably outside of the whole implantable kind of category and devices that really can still make a difference in public health.
1: Well, let's talk about robotics for a second because the truth is, we finally have to tell people Matt and I are really androids, they got us cheap. uh, Very cheap. (laughs) So let's talk about robotic advances in recent years. I'm fascinated by robotics. What's hot? What's coming up? Knock our socks off with something coming up here.
2: Yeah, I think there's some exciting things going on, certainly in surgery. And as we see more happening in the areas of mobile, um, or I should say remote uh, health and sort of this whole telehealth uh, as video conferencing capabilities, and even just being able to control these ro- robots remotely uh, becomes more mainstream, I think we're going to start seeing more of this happening. And um, and so certainly in robotics, uh, as, as it relates specifically to surgery and to difficult surgeries, surgeries that are laparoscopic or microscopic, or just whatever it might be, remote locations. Uh, I think the other thing that we're really going to see are things at the nanoscale. And so nanoscale robots, or nanobots, is not really what you and I would consider traditional robots in the sense that they don't have what we would call like motors and things like that, gears, but it's it's really using a different type of molecular technology to deliver medications or to really combat disease. And so I think from the large scale, uh, these large robots in the operating room, uh, to the really nanoscale, I think we will see a number of different advances in all of these areas.
1: Say more about the nanoscale robot. That fascinates me.
0: Yeah, but we've heard about it for 20-plus years, and we keep hearing, you know, nanobots, nanobots, nanotechnology. Is it really moving forward, or is this still 5, 10, 20 years off?
2: Well, I don't know how many years off it is. Uh, I've been following a lot of the news coming out from my alma mater, MIT, and they're doing a lot of research there around nanotechnology, nanobots, using it to deliver medications or just changing the formulation of medications as well as seeing how these nanobots can really target disease. And so without getting into the uh, complex mechanisms of how these nanobots actually operate, I think the whole idea is really that if we can find molecular receptors and target areas, that we can then create some kind of an artificial device or robot, for lack of a better term, to actually work in that receptor, to actually go in to the body, to, to go in and to really target something at a molecular level and make an impact, then it could actually really uh, advance the treatment of disease or make a drug more effective or just do things along those different scales, perhaps reduce adverse events or adverse reactions to certain therapies. So I think it's it's still largely a very nebulous area because it's conceptually difficult for us to grasp. But I think in many ways, just like when targeted therapies and, like, oncology and rheumatology came about, and we really didn't understand these molecular mechanisms and these biologic drugs, in a, lot of, in, in a similar way, I think, with nanotechnology, we're going to see similar kinds of shifts starting to occur as we have a better understanding of the science.
0: Well, here's a question really quick. Just give us a yes or no, really. Are they working in vivo? Because that's something that I think a lot of our listeners will get with regards to nanotechnology.
2: I think that they are doing a lot of tests in vivo
0: right now, yes. Thanks. That's very promising. Well, Dr. Kim, it's been great having you on the show as always. Michael and I are total amateur tech junkies. So find, we, find us some robots we, to interview. We really love getting the latest from someone in the know. We really do. So thank you again for that, and thanks for talking to us.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me. That
0: was Dr. Joseph Kim, health technologist and editor of the blog MedicineAndTechnology.com.
1: He's not a robot, is he? No, i severely. Well, he went to okay. MIT. So. Before we move before we move on to our next guest, as we mentioned at the top of the show, February is National Heart Month, and to pay homage to that, we're bringing out the virtual stethoscopes for some audio trivia. That's right, it's time to play What's That Thump? What's That Thump? You can win big prizes here, the Murmur Name Game. Today's sound clips come from the recently updated New England Journal's website, nejm.org. They've added a bunch of interactive elements, including auscultation quizzes like the samples we're playing today. So check them out. We'll play two murmurs for you now, then swing back to them at the end of the show with detailed answers. If you have the answers, call us. You might win something, and you might not. Here's murmur number one, mystery murmur number one. Roll it, Tony. I love that one.
0: All right, now let's play mystery murmur number two and see if anyone gets Thump stumped on this one. Tony, if you please.
1: Oh, my goodness. Every dermatologist knows these. Okay, you've heard them. You've probably got some ideas lined up, or maybe you haven't touched a stethoscope in years and have absolutely no idea like me. <laughs> Michael Graham. Either way, stay tuned because we're getting back to them at the end of the show. Alright,
0: now moving on to another quiz, but we'll just answer this one directly. What do a 50-cent piece, a matchstick, a toy goat, and an award for perfect attendants have in common?
1: That was my, my Christmas gift this year.
0: <laughs> They're all objects on display for having been swallowed or inhaled and later extracted by Dr. Chevalier Jackson, inventor of the bronchoscope. These artifacts are among 2,000 plus objects that Dr. Jackson extracted during his career from 1887 to 1935 and are now on display at the Mütter Museum at the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. Our guest, author Mary Capello tells the story of this laryngology pioneer, the crazy objects his patients have gulped down, and even the physiology of swallowing itself. In her new book titled, Swallow, Foreign Bodies, Their Ingestion, Inspiration, and the Curious Doctor Who Extracted Them. Miss Capello, welcome to Second Opinion Live.
3: Thank you.
1: Hi there. Hi. Uh, all right. Before we get started, we've got to address the elephant in the room. We haven't swallowed Literally, an elephant. it's a literal here. elephant <laughs> in the room right now. Why a book on swallowing disasters? I mean, and is this a bestseller? Oh, is this a morbid fascination or just purely academic agenda or both or why?
3: Well, maybe it's a combination of all those things. I wasn't really thinking bestseller, to tell you the truth. I have a background in medical humanities and had never been to the Mütter Museum. I don't know if you've been there, but... You know, it's a tremendously interesting place. I actually made the trip with a friend who was writing about peristalsis, and we went there to see the very large bowel that's on display there. And I happened upon
1: the collection of of warm
3: bodies. And, you know, it's a fascination originally with the idea of the cabinet of curiosity and just the opening of these drawers and then the ways in which the objects have a kind of magical aura That gave way to my discovering that Jackson, the person who was responsible for extracting and saving these objects, was also a a tremendously uh, wonderful writer, and he wrote his autobiography in 1938. It was a bestseller. I read the autobiography, then realized that that was really where the book was waiting to be written, a book that could bring back to light his contribution to medical history, but also... His a kind of eccentric genius in combination with, uh, indeed the strangeness of the cabinet, but also some of the lives of the patients that are attached to these objects. And, you know, once you start investigating the objects, it's true that they, they do seem, you know, they're imbued with whimsy and even, high comedy, but then I went to the National Library of Medicine and started to discover some of the case histories attached to the objects, and then you you discover that there's a social history of hunger attached to the objects. Um, there are terrible, uh, terribly tragic um, uh, tales to be told, but also... Um, a psychology of swallowing that Jackson really did not want to bring into his purview, you know, um, cases in which people were purposefully purposely swallowing things or one case in which someone had, um, uh, fed objects to a baby. The cabinet just really represents such a range of human experience, both corporeal and sociological that I realized, um, There was a book waiting to be written, and I really think that this book is just, I'm just opening a few of the drawers, um in Chevalier-Jackson.
1: Okay. If you just joined us on Second Opinion Live, we're speaking with Mary Capello, author of the book Swallow, Foreign Bodies Are Ingestion, Inspiration, and the Curious Doctor who Extracted Them. Matt, you have a question?
0: I always have a question. Mary. Stop um,
1: swallowing the microphone, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> too,
0: too late for that. <laughs> so Mary, I don't want to labor the point, but I've, obviously I need to go back for just a second because sure. you mentioned that you first came into the idea for this or doing research, seeing the Mütter Museum exhibit with a friend of yours who was doing a book on peristalsis. And I have to say, you clearly keep some pretty interesting company. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> is this like the GI Track Central? Is this like has, a the club
1: that. Has Hollywood optioned your book yet?
3: No, but do you think that maybe through this program we could interest some folks? Well, yeah, you add some I pancreatic person absolutely. and you got yourself a team. I'd like there's to play still the making e- material here. There's no question. I'd
1: like to play the esophagus in the movie. <laughs> Michael's always the <laughs> esophagus.
0: But here's here's another question. You write that Dr. Jackson did not want his collected specimens to be considered what he called mere curiosities, or yes. what you quoted as he put it. So, what did he want people to take away from the collection?
3: Well, presumably, he wanted to make people, fellow physicians in particular, um, what he called form-body conscious. And, you know, I think even to this day, pulmonologists um, quote him, he's famous for so many aphorisms, among them, all that wheezes is not asthma. And so this idea that, you know, never overlook the possibility that when people present with all manner of um, um, symptoms, not just... not just. Um, inspiratory oriented, but also esophageal, Um, as we know, you know, the physiology, the complex physiology of the uh, the precarious proximity of the windpipe and the esophagus leads people to present with um, a range of symptoms when there is a foreign body stuck in one of these places. And so he wanted to make his fellow physicians foreign body conscious. But part of the point of my book is to also discover the ways in which... um, the cabinet is so much more than that, and you don't collect thousands of these things and scrupulously document them, give each of them a frame, a number, um, without, without, on some level, knowing that you're also. Producing something like a work of art, or, of or a you collection could be, of oddities, yeah. and you know,
0: there's also a personality subtype for that. I think they call it schizotypal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are people who collect rubber bands to the size of barns. Well, for him, was, his vice was collecting these specimens. I guess
3: he was definitely eccentric, and and you probably know that. You know, of course. Any number of gastroenterologists do or do not save the things that they retrieve. Um, His is not the only collection in the world. It's just, in many ways, the most interesting, most replete, most complete, most scrupulously documented. Um, There's a tome that accompanies the collection, in which each item is cued to uh, the facts in the case. Not all of the facts in the case, and that's partly why I wrote my book, because, as I said earlier... He really couldn't um, allow human psychology into his purview. And so he actually seems to purposefully leave out details of the cases. But you can just discover, using this, this tome-like grid that accompanies the collection, uh, how long it took him, what kind of forceps he used, what kind of scope he used, how old the patient was, whether, very very bald terms, cured or died, um, and, of course, the astonishing thing is that in 98% of the cases, his patients not only lived but thrived. You is know, that because
0: he, the ones who made it to him were essentially still able to breathe? They weren't so – they didn't have like a lacerated or – Or a total or, obstruction. Or kind yeah. Of esophagus. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
3: I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I mean that's, that's, that's it. A very important point. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, interestingly, in most of these cases, yeah, we weren't dealing with emergencies. Though, of course, it raises the question I mean, what is an emergency? What is a medical emergency? He always, uh, first, of course, um, by way of radiograph, um, you know, pictured the foreign body if it could be pictured and then studied its position and then actually. With his prototypes, you know, he would say this is another reason why he kept the collection, that he always had prototypes on hand. He would then practice on using a rubber tube. Um, So he would allow for all that time, actually, um, before actually performing the operation,
1: the procedure.
3: What should we call it an operation or procedure?
1: We have a lot of silly questions we could ask, but I want to go to one serious point. Uh, His work led him to lobby for increased safety legislation, especially against LIE. Let's talk about that for a minute because that was important
3: very important. He was um really uh not exactly solely responsible for it, but he was the force behind the passage of the Federal Caustic Act. Just passed it by Congress in 1927 that legislated that um all poisonous substances be labeled as such, and it was inspired by his um treating so many 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 children. In the clinics, who had confused—in all the cases, they were just confusing lye with sugar. Lye being a common household product in the in the teens and twenties, uh, the 1920s. Um, and in some cases, the you know these children were also hungry, and pe- uh, children put things in their mouths for all number of reasons. And of course, lye um, is caustic, terribly caustic, and it would scar these children's uh, esophagi, and then. Um, you know, in many cases, they would suffer fatal obstruction. But Jackson was able to um, treat them in his clinics. But of course, he saw so many tragic um, and fatal cases that he he pushed for this law to be passed, and it finally was, not without some resistance, because of course, uh, the folks who manufactured these caustic substances were afraid that people wouldn't want to buy them if uh, there were skulls and crossbones on household items. And so it wasn't an easy thing, but it was one of the many things that he achieved as the humanitarian that he was.
0: Was there heavy-duty lobbying even back then,
3: Yeah, you imagine, against, against
0: that regulation coming out?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: When I was a little kid, I thought the pirates brought that stuff into our house. That's what the going was.
3: That was pirate stuff, yeah. That was
1: 1885. that make it more attractive? It made it more attractive. I didn't want yeah, to swallow well, it. Yeah, well, you
3: know, maybe you know that it's, uh, it's it was replaced, I guess, it has been replaced by a mister Yuck-yuck. Yeah. I did some reading about this, uh, yeah, and I don't know, it is this question, are children attracted to various images rather than repelled by them? How do you, how do you prevent someone, and a, a child in particular, from putting something into his mouth? This is, a perennial, this is a perennial question, because humans get to know the world by way of our mouths.
0: I've been calling Michael Greenberg Mr. Yuck for years. Yeah, so I just swallowed my always... iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of which, speaking of uh, sword swallowers. Let's speaking talk of about them. well, yeah, exactly. Speaking of you know, extraordinary things that are being swallowed. Yeah. You know, this is the late nineteenth, early twentieth century we're talking about in America. So sword swallowing was definitely in around then. It was all the rage. If you ever caught a circus show. My question is, I mean, didn't sword swallowers actually play an important role in his early endoscopic research?
3: They played a major role, not necessarily in his um, endoscopic research. He might not. He might not want to admit that he. I mean, he never wrote about watching a sword swallower. but his colleagues in Germany, most definitely, I mean, Adolf Kuzma in 1868, um, literally learned, uh, was instructed by the sword swallower how to insert um, the first esophagoscope that he had designed. Um, he, his work was compromised by the fact that there wasn't an adequate lighting system at the time, but the swords follower was indeed... Um, I think in many ways they inspired the earliest uh, endoscopists. They they demonstrated that it could be possible, it could be done. They showed them how uh, they learned to line up, you know, the head, neck, and throat to uh, make a straight line so that an, a rigid instrument could be passed without harm. And they also served um, as the physician's... Um, uh, what shall we say? You know, they're demonstrators. When they would, they would bring them to medical the medical societies to to demonstrate the use of the instrument. So, the sword swallowers' place in the history of endoscopy, I think, really cannot and should not be underestimated. Most definitely, actually, there are some uh, still performing sword swallowers, and I got to know a fellow named Dan Meyer, who is the president of the Sword Swallowers Association International. Maybe you. Don't know that such a they have an association such an organization <laughs> exists, and um, I, I write I write a bit about Dan in the later chapters of the book um, because yeah I'm trying to understand uh, what he's what he's about and why people like to watch people uh, do things like this and um, it's all of a piece it really is all part and parcel of, of the same history.
1: I get creeped out when I watch sword swallows. I'm always worried that the blade's gonna separate from the hilt and it's gonna go right down.
3: Well, right. I'm afraid that it probably has happened from time right. to time. Exactly. Right.
1: We hate to cut you off, no pun intended, but we, <laughs> we're we're a live show <laughs> in Time Limited. Our guest today has been Mary Capella, author of the book Swallow. Foreign Bodies are ingestion inspiration and the curious doctor who extracted them, exploring the physiology of swallowing in the life of laryngologist, Dr. Chevalier Jackson. Ms. Capella, thank you for joining us today on Second Meeting Live, and we want to be there when the movie breaks.
3: Okay, I hope you will. I'll be sure to invite you. Starring
1: Brad Pitt.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much.
1: Well, before
0: we go, as promised, let's circle back to those mystery murmurs and name those thumps. Here's murmur number one again. Roll it, Tony. The answer... That's none other than mitral valve prolapse, or if you want to get really fancy on rounds, Barlow's syndrome murmur. Of course. It's the classic click murmur syndrome. <laughs> not that I really heard much clicking in this example, but I'm no cardiologist, and I'm actually also an idiot. Mitral valve prolapse is often benign, but can be associated with palpitations, chest pain, or fainting in patients. The murmur was first described by South African physician Dr. John Barlow in 1968. Thank you very much.
1: you actually not an idiot usually okay now okay time for murmur number two yuck I love that rhythm. You can dance to it. That's Gibson's murmur, often described as a machinery murmur. It can range from humming and purring to clanging or even rolling thunder, depending on the severity characterized by Dr. George Gibson of Scotland back in 1898. That's when you were born. That's right. This murmur is best heard at the upper left sternal border. and may even be audible from the back. What does its presence on exam normally indicate for the patient? Answer, a patent ductus arteriosus. Expect this murmur to get louder from childhood through adulthood. Well, people get louder. True that.
0: Remember that you can also check these and other murmurs out at New England Journal's website, NEJM.org. Look for an interactive article called Name That Murmur, Eponyms for the Astute Auscultician. And with that, this show's on its last heartbeat, literally. So let's wrap it up for this edition of Second Opinion Live. I'm literally Dr. Matt Bernholz. And I'm
1: metaphysically Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. Access an audio podcast of the show in our entire archive. Visit us at reachmd.com slash SOL. Thank you, Tony, Paula, Alex in the control room. And thank you for listening. Come back every other week for the show. It's the best thing on radio. Mr. Yuck will be waiting for you. We're here for you.